Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, we've done it to you. You're going to have Vampire Weekend stuck in your head all Vampire Weekend. <laughs> and there's a way in which that Vampire Weekend song, which appears in the closing credits, I believe, of the final episode of The Chair, which we're about to talk about, resembles The Chair in a certain way. In, in a way, because of the fact that Vampire Weekend... This is a complicated idea that I may not be able to articulate perfectly. You know, Vampire Weekend in the Chair, uh, which is an academic comedy, uh, if there can be such a thing, are constantly sort of straddling that odd divide between possible self-mockery and possible overweening preening. Uh, all right, I give up. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Uh, it could be that I've just not had enough sleep. Uh, so we're going to talk today about the chair, which has been the subject of much debate among our panelists. But also, if you just go out in what we sometimes call the world, there seems to be <laughs> an awful lot of chatter going on and people don't agree uh, at all. And it's even hard to sort of predicate their disagreements on their, their ostensible identities. So uh, with all that in mind, I'm about to introduce the panelists. I'll tell you that we'll segue, I think, very smoothly from there to an essay uh, in, uh, in Vulture or New York Magazine or, or something, an essay in something uh, about the role of kind of the dysfunctional white male uh, in comedy um, and whether or not it is changing. And we'll also talk about um, the fact that Netflix is kind of dropping the entire – I mean dropping not in the sense of giving up on but dropping in the sense of introducing the entire Seinfeld oeuvre and almost kind of jokingly pretending it's a brand new show but raising the question of whether or not millennials will be able to relate to that. So all of these things are kind of tied together I, th I think. Uh, but, for, but before I say another word, let's introduce the panel. We expanded the panel. We've been doing uh, two people plus me ever since the pandemic started. We've gone back to our old configuration today, partly because we wanted to have all the people from academia on, or as many as we could anyway. Elizabeth Kuyper is a professor at, uh, professor emerita of English at uh, Tungsis Community College. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Bill Usman is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. I would add that I teach at Yale, and I actually taught – this all takes place in the English department uh, at Pembroke University or Pembroke College, whatever it is. Uh, and I taught in the English department of Trinity for quite a long time as an adjunct. So, um, I mean, I don't have the kind of cred that the rest of these panelists have, but I have some anyway. Um, all right. So, hard to know where to begin, and maybe the way to begin is to um, give you a little taste 
uh, of the two kind of quasi-romantic leads. Uh, so we hear Sandra Oh as Ji Yoon Kim and Jay Duplass as Bill Dobson. Uh, she is the newly crowned chair uh, of the English department. She is uh, the first woman of color, and I think the first woman to chair the English department there, which is kind of bizarre all by itself. <laughs> what year is this supposed to be? And he is sort of the charmingly dysfunctional Mercutio-like professor who everybody loves, even though he's constantly teetering on the verge of getting himself in a lot of trouble. He gave me a list of the three faculty members who are paid the highest and have the lowest enrollment. And Joan, Rents, Mikhail. Mikhail. I mean, he wants me to talk them into retirement? I hope you told him the f off. I serve at the pleasure of the dean. He wishes. You know, it's your job as chair to advocate. Even on five years, do you think we'll even exist? The English department? I feel like I arrived at the party after, after last call. I gotta, I gotta get some work done. Yep. Oh, and also, no more rise from female students. My car's impounded. I'm getting back this afternoon. What are you, a spy? What are you, a moron? Some flunky from the Dean of Students emailed me. You know that was Daphne Eisenstadt? No. Eisenstadt like Board of Trustees Eisenstadt. Oh. Yeah. I need everyone on their best behavior. It's important for the health of the department. It's important for the health of the department? I don't know why, just Work. get out. Feel it now. All right. So we all had, I think, very different reactions to this. Um, uh, Bill has been quite active on social media uh, talking uh, to people about this. But I think because I, I know maybe the least about her uh, reaction to it, uh, I'd like to begin with Irene. Um, uh, Irene, who spends her days, um, not merely English department adjacent, but embedded therein. Um, I don't know. What is this series to you? I think one of the big questions about this series, is it a sort of flat out comedy about an English department the way, say, Brooklyn 911 or whatever that's called is about a police precinct or the taxi uh, It was a comedy about a bunch of taxi drivers. Is it that or is it something else? Um, it, it's that and it is something else also, I would say. Um, I really liked it and I thought it was great to have um, to have a, a comedy, something that can work kind of as a comedy um, that's about the workplace of academia, you know, because we hard, we don't see that very often. And the fact that it could make people interested in it is, um, I think, wonderful, you know, and I think they raise issues, but, you know, at the same time, they raise issues that are very um, important in the academic world. And I think come to a certain kind of conclusion about those issues that I think is um, that, that, you know, that I could get behind. Okay, that's very interesting. Well, we definitely want to know more about those issues as we go along here. So, uh, so Bill, let's swing over to you. You got on the chair bus really early, or the bus that had the chair on it or something, uh, <laughs> and have been talking to a lot of people. <laughs> so where are you right now, Bill? I got on the chair because I really like sitting, you know, so I was like, oh, there's a chair. I can sit on that. I really like the show, and um, I've been like a I've been going to the barricades, kind of like defending it uh, against the naysayers. I'm not quite sure why I'm so defensive about this show. It's not like I'm one of the writers or anything, but um, I, I think it was a kind of predictable that there would be these 
you know, rabidly different reactions to it and that a lot of academics would be uh, for it and a lot of academics would be criticizing it because that's just kind of what we do, right? Especially humanities professors. It's, you know, the training is in critique and I think we just can't help ourselves but critique. And so I, I, I think that that was pretty much to be expected. But I really like the show. I think it, it you know, it, it, they do call it a, a dramedy, which I think might get to some of the things you want to talk uh, about, Colin, about, you know, is there like an identity crisis with this show? Um, and I didn't find myself laughing out loud. And some of the humor, the slapstick humor is a little broad. But um, uh, like Irene, I feel like it did a good job with a narrative and with touching on some larger issues. All right. So let's hear from a naysayer. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Kuyper, uh, you have the floor. Well, I, I, one of the things I said in the email is that I do love Sandra O. Oh, and I said she can communicate a world of emotion just with her eyes. So I do want to say that her performance in it was something that I enjoyed very much. What I didn't enjoy about the series was some really hackneyed uh, stereotypes about college. And one of the, in one of the emails, I also said that maybe it's because I've been working at a community college for so many years where these stereotypes do not fit, uh, that, that they seemed so sort of goofy and silly and outdated to me, like leather patches on your elbows and that kind of thing, uh, you know, classical music playing in the hallways as, as she walks down the hallway. So I think there were some things that I just could not relate to, but I also think there was some ageist elements to it. Uh, the three oldest members of the department are kind of portrayed as being very, either just pompous or, or losing their minds or losing their intellectual capabilities. Or, and or, or, or noisily flatulent, I mean. Or no, noisily, <laughs> which was really, oh my God. And then as a person who just newly retired, uh, yes, I took some offense to somebody being thought of as irrelevant just because they're they're older. We've had some older professors at Tunxis who were beloved right up until the last day they were there, and they were still relevant. They were cool. They were hip. So right. I Although I, I think we should point out that uh, so the three professors uh, include a character played by uh, Holland Taylor. Her name is Joan, um, and and although she initially is, I think. Uh, that kind of exaggerated version uh, of a superannuated professor. Um, the character is written and then played by just uh, obviously one of America's wonderful uh, actors. Uh, it you know it's she plays it and she recovers it and then ultimately we we kind of get a fully rounded. Uh, character and there's a scene uh, where she's kind of yelling in a parking lot or, or somewhere <laughs> where she says, you know, and if you can't figure out why Chaucer was a badass, then get the f out of my class. <laughs> and you sort of and and I think some students go, what are you teaching next time? Because they're, they're very intrigued. Who's this lady who's like yelling stuff that sounds you know very passionate and exciting? And, and I think they say, what are you teaching next semester? And she goes, Chaucer. <laughs> <laughs> love her yeah. love that, that character that was a great line though yeah. that they said that that they said what are you teaching next semester right you know mm -hmm. because oh. it okay colin no, did i interrupt no 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 no. Yeah. i want you to keep going all right so if i would jump in, i would say because in a way for me the big the big the bit like a, a huge issue that the that it touches on that is very you know something that all colleges are dealing with is the is money 
you know, the issue of money. And so that scene, there's a scene in the beginning with the dean where it's like, yeah, but, you know, we need to get more enrollments in your classes. We need to get rid of the people that are only having, only attracting few students, you know. And then the question, you know, and, and all colleges are having to deal with that, you know. Um, and and also the fact that maybe, especially English, you know, the worry is, you know, students don't care about reading in the same way that they, that maybe we used to when we were students. And so there's other, there's innovations, there's innovative pedagogy. How do you deal with that issue about money and, and allowing the, the college to maintain itself? Um, and so, so she, you know, as a, you know, and so one of the answers is make, things interesting you know if you make things interesting you know and so the dean has one answer and the fact and the chair uh, the our chair in the show and other people have a different answer and i think to me the 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 show as a whole kind of throws that question to the audience and and gets us to think about it um but you know and so that's why i think that question what are you teaching next semester the fact that she her chutzpah is interesting to them yeah it's chaucer really it's just Chaucer's interesting and I want and they want to know more. So the more they can see that, the better. Yeah, I you know, Bill, I feel like this show is at its most confused when it's trying to speak to some of these issues, because uh, one of the things that we see in the class is the the uh, superannuated farting professor played by Bob Balaban uh, is co-teaching a class with the young superstar, uh, a black teacher known as Yaz. Uh, played by an actress, I feel bound to point out, from Connecticut, who actually went to Loomis Chafee, not too far from where we're all mm -hmm. sitting right now. Uh, but uh, she's kind of the superstar. They co-teach the class. She breathes life into it. Their students are writing kind of Hamilton-style uh, musical <laughs> riffs, you know, on Melville and, and all of this stuff. Uh, and But it, I, I don't know. At the end, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. At the end, we do get a, get a glimpse of Sandra O's character teaching. As far as I'm concerned, she's teaching Emily Dickinson in you know a way that it would have been taught in 1980 or 1960. I didn't really see, you know, how that innovation was kicking in when she got us a chance to show her implied chops, her chops that are kind of implied all the way through the series. But yeah, I'd love to hear from from all of you. You guys are the teachers. Well, what do you what do you make of that? Well, I, I think that's one of the things that bothered me was that when it came to the older professors we didn't really see any change by the end. Uh, I agree with you there. And I think that first of all, we saw very little of Sandra O's teaching uh, that we saw only a couple seconds here and there of that. So we didn't really get any sense of her scholarship or her style. And really there was no introduction to, there wasn't a, a chance given to the older faculty members to, to innovate other than the Bob Balaban character sort of being thrown in with the, the teacher doing kind of a Hamilton-esque version of, Moby Dick, which was amusing. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure if that would really happen, but it was very, you know, kind of innovative and interesting. But I didn't see any change. It was almost like the older folks were just slowly being pushed out. Well, I could, I just, I just have to jump in there and say that it's not as though everything, you know, every, the only thing that that's going to work is innovative pedagogy, where you're doing something completely different. Sandra O oh is, I mean you know, maybe it would have been interesting to choose a different poem, one that wasn't so familiar or something, but she did have the class paying attention to an Emily Dickinson poem. And so even though Colin wouldn't have, might've liked it, you know, something a little bit deeper for her to engage the class with, I think the act of engaging students in a text 
it was valued at that moment in the in the show. And I think it was trying to say something with that. So it doesn't have to be innovative. It just has to be something, you know, those innovative pedagogies do sometimes manage to get students attention in a way that lecturing for an hour didn't, you know, and so, it, you know, it's not going to answer all the questions about how best to teach literature in a show like that, but it's going to. And maybe it's, maybe it's not to, to Bill's point. Maybe it's, maybe we're making the mistake that Bill has warned people against this because, Bill, I was about to say a different thing to you, but maybe I should give you the chance to say, this is a comedy. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, right. You know, so go um, ahead and say that. Yeah. So I I just, you know, I, I said to you all, uh, and I think maybe I said this on social media as well, like, it's not a documentary. It, I felt like a lot of people wanted it to be, you know, a comprehensive examination of the state of academia in the 2020s. And that's not what its intent was. That's not, you know, I would watch that, but I don't think a lot of other people would want, would watch it. It's not a frontline expose. It's, it's a comedy. And so, yeah, does it have some stereotypes? Sure. It does. Comedy often does, but it, it plays with those. That's that's the whole reason that they're there. Um, and I, I would agree with Elizabeth that it's not particularly fair to faculty, especially older faculty. And you know, I'm I am one. Um, and yet, on the other hand, not like those guys. You aren't, Bill. <laughs> I'm not not yet, but it's fast approaching. Although you know, I'll be laying on my couch just reading all day by the time I get to that. Um, but but you know. The, the the thing I'll say about that is I feel like some people's stereotypes are other people's colleagues. <laughs> and, you know, true story, when I was in grad school, I was in a, a seminar with a professor who fell asleep in class. Um, he had a guest speaker. I looked over his chin was literally on his chest and he was sleeping. So, you know, these things do happen. But Bill, could, However, I, could, could I just jump in there and say, because one of my questions, yes. and, I, but I, and I specifically want you to explore this with me a little bit, is I keep at, kept asking myself, what what year is this? <laughs> I also kept asking, what time of year is it? Because occasionally it starts snowing. And as far as I can Yeah, tell, that was weird. It's like they started <laughs> in the spring semester. Yeah, it started in like January because it was the yeah. beginning of the year. Okay. And they forgot. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, like, I don't know. What you're describing, first of all, I should say, when I was adjunct at Trinity, there were some of those kinds of superannuated uh, people. Also, the chair of the English department was and had been and continued to be Mila Riggio, a woman. This is the 1980s. That's one of the reasons I'm finding this. Oh, we've got our first woman chair of the department. It's like in 2021, you've got your first woman chair of the department. Is this like Jerry Falwell's university or something? But, um, but beyond that, Bill, I sort of thought like the tension – Correct me if I'm wrong. You should all correct me if I'm wrong. But to me, I would assume the tension these days in an English department, in the humanities in general, is not some fossilized guy who wants to teach Melville a certain way or Chaucer, for that matter, but, you know, the, these Lacanians and Foucault admirers and deconstructionists <laughs> who kind of priced humanities out of the market, made it so recherche, you know, so unbelievably kind of self-reflective and metacognitive and everything that nobody could understand it and nobody wanted any part of it, you know, and that they'd be being crowded out by the multiculturalists and, and, and the representationists at this point. I, I thought that the, the, the tension 
tension here between poor old Bob Balavant-Ban, who just wants to give his usual Melville lecture, you know, and, and, and something a little bit more or a lot more populist. Is that really the tension that's going on right now? Well, I, I would have several responses to that. The, the, the first would be that I do think it really is true that in many places, um, it's still very much dominated by white male faculty. Um, I don't think academia has diversified as much as we would like to think that it has uh, because of all of our rhetoric about that. So I, I, I do think that that's possible in many places. I think the thing you're talking about is more likely in elite institutions. Um, and that would fit for this show because it is supposed to be an elite institution rather than uh, institutions colleges across the board, which, you know, Elizabeth brought up, she teaches at a community college, I teach at a Catholic university, Irene is at, you know, Trinity College, a small, oh, also Catholics, liberal arts, um, you've taught at Yale, there's so much difference, right? Um, and what I see is, is that, you know, one thing that I would say, I, I think the show gets gets a little wrong is that enrollments in the humanities are not down because all the professors are boring. Remote, enrollments in the humanities are down because of what we've redefined college as, that it's supposed to just be, you know, training so that you can then leave and get some type of, you know, comfortable job somewhere. And so business degrees are up and science and technology degrees are up. Not, and I don't think it's because all the professors are boring. Um, I do think there are lots of interesting things that are happening in classrooms all over the country beyond, you know, trying to do some Hamilton kind of reenactment of, of Moby Dick. I thought that <laughs> was not necessarily what people would, would really be doing, but there, you know, it's all about bringing some life and passion to your teaching. And I think if you do that, you can turn them on in lots of different ways. You know, yeah, I think that's one thing that bothered me about it was that I don't mind stereotypes at all, and I do understand their comedic impact. Uh, but when you have the three oldest all falling sort of into the same group, that's what bothered me about it. It seemed like it took old-fashioned stereotypes about college and inserted too many of them. And I said, if this is one of the few shows on TV about college, especially from the faculty orientation, not from the uh, student, um, you know, uh, legally blonde kind of orientation, then you then you're, what people are seeing, even if it's supposed to be a comedy, which I didn't find it all that funny, um, then that's what they're seeing. And that's the, the danger, I think, in picking up sort of old fashioned stereotypes and crunching too many of them or swishing too many of them together in the same show. One question I had is how come they weren't teaching any, any modern authors? I mean, they were in at Tunxis, we would be teaching modern authors. I mostly teach nonfiction in my freshman composition class. It's all new articles picked on all kinds of current topics. So it seemed like there was a, a that's all we were seeing was uh, the canon when most colleges are really mixing that up these days. Right. The canon uh, already went off. Yeah. Hey, the, I, I want to just sort of make sure I'm trying to manage time and we're kind of running out of it. Uh, and, and there's a way in which this show has so much plot going on. There are a lot of plot and subplots and subplots and subplots. Uh, and uh, apparently we're not going to talk about a lot of them. But really, we haven't even 
truly mentioned, Irene, the driving plot, the central plot, which I would uh, would argue that is the uh, plight of Bill Dobson, uh, the character played by Jay Duplass. He is this kind of endearing, uh, funny, smart uh, but also kind of self-imploding uh, <laughs> guy who uh, who we see who's been through some tragedies in his own life and isn't coping well and is self-medicating, and we see him attempt to, attempt to teach his class. And by the way, he looks like he really might be the most interesting teacher at that school. I mean, he kicks off this class with a, a, a question about why would Camus and Beckett, the two writers who argue that there was no cure for being alive, that there's nothing to be done, why would they join the resistance? You know, kind of want to hear that lecture. Lecture Suddenly, to make a point, he does a Sig Heil kind of salute. This is captured on a million smartphones that are pointed at him from the class because that's what we do in class is we we video our teachers uh, and it gets taken out of context and he gets in all kinds of trouble and he refuses to do the things that he should do to get out of trouble because the whole thing strikes him as so incredibly contrived and, and, and not real. It's Sandra O's job as the chair, the person trying to hold things together and keep the ship from sinking, but also as a guy, as a person who has affection for this guy, there's a lot of sexual tension going on and they kind of have a Hepburn and Tracy type back and forth uh, uh, barbed uh, comedic uh, give and take. Um, But I mean, you know, there's we're seeing um, one of these miniature campus uh, revolts, which we are all familiar (laughs) with at this point and and for the most part are not very funny while they're happening. So I don't know, Irene, just say a little bit more about that somehow. Okay, I'll say, I'll say, I, I, yeah, um, no, they're not funny at all, and a, and a lot of us are worried that someone's gonna gonna tape something you say and put it out of con, take it out of context, and then student, you know, it'll cause an uproar. Um, but I, I want to, you know, Bill said we've redefined college to me to think of it as a career track, and I just want to say that, you know, yeah, some people have that is a really huge problem for a liberal arts college is that. Sometimes students think that they're there to get, you know, uh, vocational training for whatever they're going to do after that. But if we hold on to the to the liberal arts values of deliberation, critical thinking, reflection, um, we're not going to have, you know, then act. What does that mean about activism? You know, because activism, if we don't, if we put those values aside, Activism means jumping on the bandwagon, which is so much how we have it, you know, in our culture right now. Somebody says something, everyone says, yeah, he's a Nazi. Okay, let's, you know, um, let's protest. Let's all jump on the back without saying, okay, wait a minute, let's look at it. What exactly did he say? What was the context in which he said it? You know, so I think they're sort of highlighting the way that people can get, you know, students and others can get just carried away on these you know, um, bandwagons, let's say, uh, that, that are, that are, that are activist in, in, in name only in a way, you know, so he says, even Bill and the character says, you know, well, I was talking about South African divestment when I was in this seat, you know, and, or when I, when he was a student, you know, and so as a, so there, so the issue of activism and we're, and we're for that, you know, people are, you know, of course you should protest things you don't like, but it's turned into something that's a mockery of the idea of activism, which I thought was interesting. All right. We're going to have to stop there. We really could do this entire 47 minute show about the chair and our various reactions to it. Um, There's so many funny things that we didn't talk about. There are, yeah. I I mean, I think you kind of have to watch this just because you're going to be in so many conversations about it. 
possibly even over Labor Day weekend, assuming you manage to socialize at this point. So um, I think we all recommend that you watch The Chair, uh, maybe even Elizabeth. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, it has its flaws and its faults, but uh, it's it, it gets you thinking. And that's what, of course, the man humanities are supposed to do. So let's take a break. We'll be back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. In, in, in a way, the conversation we just started is going to go on, I think, with both of the topics that still remain. Uh, I think, Bill, it was you who sent us, We, by the way, with us today, Elizabeth Kiefer, Irene Papoulis, inventor of the Papoulian throughline, uh, and Bill Usman, uh, all uh, very, very well steeped in the world of academia and in, in crit- critical thinking. So, um, Bill, I think you were the one who clued us into a, a piece in Vulture uh, by a writer named Catherine Van Arendonk, uh, which is called TV's White Guys Are in Crisis. Uh, her premise uh, is uh, ultimately that there's a type of white guy who used to be the default protagonist on TV and in American life. All of the beleaguered dads, dad bosses, bad bosses, authority leaders, and wild card Mavericks. They're no longer the main characters. So what happens to that guy now? Should he be erased? Can he be rehabilitated? Uh, his entitlement washed away. Where is he supposed to go? Uh, a little bit later in the piece, uh, she she cites uh, some examples of those kinds of people. To my way of thinking, they aren't all the same people. Uh, she talks about, uh, we used to love the guy so much. He was our Beaver Cleaver, our Tim Allen in everything Tim Allen ever played, our Alex P. Keaton, our Don Draper, our Michael Scott. We can't just throw him out or relegate him to the status of recurring minor guest star, but he no longer fits. His privilege feels outsized as a protagonist. He doesn't spark the same joy he used to. And then she singles out Ted Lasso as kind of an exception to the problem she's describing. Um, I don't know. Uh, Bill, I think it was you who flagged this piece for us. Tell us why it attracted you. Yeah, I was more attracted by the um, the concept of it. I think it's an interesting concept to want to kind of explore. You know, one thing I think she gets right is that it very much used to be the case in television that white men like me, uh, you know, were uh, the, the center uh, of these representations, that things really revolved 
uh, around them and that other people kind of skirted around the outside. I think that part she gets right. I share with you um, that I'm not sure how well she then sustains her argument with the series that she touches on in this particular piece. She's really trying to make an argument that 2021, something is happening in 2021, which is shifting white guys to the periphery. And yet, their crises still kind of want to linger around as a main part of what's happening. Um, and certainly that is true in the chair. We just talked about, you know, with the character of uh, Bill. Uh, <laughs> every time they said something, you know, like, Bill is in big trouble now, or Bill doesn't understand the gravity of the situation. Uh, my wife's eye twitched just a little <laughs> bit. Um, I, I didn't know why. Uh, my wife is also a chair uh, currently, and she can attest to the idea that a lot of what she has to do is kind of deal with white guys and put out the, the fires that white guys start and then don't want to take responsibility for. Not me, uh, not never me. Uh, they actually had to move me out of her department because she wasn't allowed to be my chair. So on paper, I'm in another department. But I, you know, the, the premise itself, I think is interesting is as our culture is shifting, are these representations going to shift as well? All right. Um, uh, Irene, you go next. Okay. I would say when I was reading that article, I was thinking about um, where we turn our attention, though, you know, because if we're looking at the chair, there's so much, you know, there's there's Sandra O herself. There is a character, Yaz, who's the black woman in the department who's up for tenure and then gets an offer somewhere else. Uh, and and her story and the whole and that whole you know and so if we turn and and women the the issue of women if we turn our we could turn our we could fixate our whole discussion on the white professor or we could shift it to the other character you know the Korean family those scenes were so funny with the Korean family and what they were saying because we could read for the subtitles what they were saying about everything. Um, and so maybe it also has to do with the audience and where the audience is going to put its put its energy. You know, the fact that there's a white guy on the show doesn't necessarily mean it's about the white guy. That's a that's sort of Harold Bloom like uh, uh, <laughs> interpretation. I like it very much. Uh, yeah, Elizabeth, what about you? Where did you go on this piece? I I kind of agreed with it, and I said um, in one of my last emails that it isn't doesn't mean the show's about the white guy, but uh, linking to what Irene just said, it is where our direction, where our focus goes. So, for instance, I found my own focus going in the chair to is this drunken uh, you know Bill guy, not our Bill, the other Bill, uh, is not he going to get his act together or not? And that's there's so much focus in that in the chair on whether he's going to be able to pick himself up and not start taking drugs and drinking himself into a, a stupor again. So I found that my my focus really wasn't on Sandra O oh as much as I wished it were for the the title of the thing and for her being the first Asian female chair at that elite college. 
Yeah, I mean, as you know, I had a very different interpretation of all that, which I thought, so back to the chair for a second, that's a plot about two people trying to save one another from their respective follies. And I think you've sketched out Bill's follies very well. Sandra O's follies, I think, is a much more extreme one. She has taken, first of all, you know, the unusual step of becoming a single adoptive parent and an adoptive parent from a minority group not her own. She's adopted uh, a little Latino girl that she's, I think, been raised from a baby. Uh, and and in my view, she's not up to the job and she's really kind of violated some of the kind of moral guarantees you put in place, particularly when you're a single adoptive transracial parent. You really kind of have to promise the world that nothing is nothing is going to cause you to shortchange uh, this child. And she's shortchanging the child in Every possible way, ranging from attention to nutrition. Uh, I mean, they open the refrigerator and there's Lunchables stacked like cordwood in there because she doesn't cook for the kid. You know, and this this drunken kind of Mercutio-like uh, character, Bill, he kind of steps in and he, he meets this kid on her own terms. Uh, he pays attention to some of the, the Latinx issues, identity issues that she's dealing with. And he starts cooking real food for her, too. <laughs> and to me, that... That isn't about um, a high-functioning Asian department chair trying to save a drunken, pill-popping, dysfunctional white professor from himself. It's really about two people who desperately need saving. And I think it could be argued that the Sandra O oh character is making the much bigger mistake than just screwing around with this classroom teaching. She's taken on this incredible responsibility, and she's not doing a very good job. And, and we see them save one another. And, and I sort of feel like a long time ago, we moved past the question that this article is asking. You know, that that whether you're, you know, talking about about 30 Rock or the good place or, or, or whatever that, you know, we're we're not really I think that question is an, it's such an old one that one of the pieces she cites, one of the series she cites, Kevin can F himself, is essentially a mocking gloss uh, you know, uh, on that original idea. Uh, uh, of the, you know, the horrible white guy. And the response of Allison, the wife in that situation, is not to divorce him, which is the adaptive thing to do, but to to plan to kill him, which is the funny thing to do. Um, I think even when you're mocking a character, it still can put a lot of focus on that character. And And so I'm sort of saying what Irene said, which is it's where our focus goes, not what the show is supposed to be about, but what we turn to. So I didn't worry as much about Sandra Oh's character's care of her kid because they did show a lot of loving scenes too, but I did think she needed to improve. Absolutely. But Bill's just seems so much more wild, wildly destructive uh, that I, and, no, and coming in late to, to class and, and all of that and, and possibly and losing his job and everything else. In that, a way it was highlighting by that, it was highlighting the fact that, you know, he did have his white male privilege. And so he could, he 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 could he got away with a lot of things and he also could say to her hey you don't have to do you're in charge you don't have to do what the dean is telling you to do and so he was sort of using that knowledge to help her and i agree that he was helping her a lot just as she was helping him though yeah i'm uh, pants is wondering whether we should transfer uh, over to transition over to seinfeld or keep talking about this I wouldn't mind just talking about this for a minute or two, because I'm curious to know what the fix is. So let me give you another example from the world of sitcoms. Well, I mean, Ron Swanson is probably a more memorable character 
than Leslie Nope in Parks and Recreation. Um, you know, for people who don't who haven't watched that one, so Amy Poehler, who was he was the star of Parks and Rec, indisputably the the star, just as Mary Tyler Moore was the star uh, of her show. Uh, you know, is this kind of Pollyannish? Um, optimistic, smart, competent, uh, try to keep the ship from sinking kind of person uh, who really, really believes in America and civic responsibility and good government and stuff like that. And Ron, Wans- Ron Swanson, played by Nick Offerman, is this kind of antediluvian, you know, sort of proto caveman guy who's into woodworking and I think probably firearms and, and has this kind of very out of date view uh, of his own maleness, you know, in an extremely funny way. But I guess my question is like, if you're going to have comedy you're going to have to laugh at somebody so and and i don't think right. we want to laugh so much in a mocking way i don't think we fix it by making the women characters memorable because they're so ridiculous <laughs> You know, uh, I mean, it seems to me that the only way to redress the po- power imbalance is to have ridiculous male characters that we do laugh at. Uh, I mean, not as some kind of programmatic feat, but I mean, it's uh, as a leaning, you know, it, it, it might be a good tendency anyway. Bill, you sounded like you had something to say. Yeah, I, I agree with that, because, you know, one one of the problems with those old, older shows is that everybody else was ridiculous. And then the white guy had to, you know, sweep in and make everything right i mean one of them that was literally their t- the title father knows best <laughs> everybody else was spinning out of control and then he could come in and make everything right isn't it progress that we've moved away from that at least and you're right colin that uh ji yoon sandra o's character on the chair really is um you know, kind of not doing a good job with any of the responsibilities in her life, but I'm sympathetic to that character because of that. You know, there are so many pressures coming at her from all directions, all at once. She's in the middle of the storm, just trying to keep all the trees from falling over. And so to, to me, there, there's some real empathy in, in that portrayal. Um, and you know, the, some of the criticism of about, well, you know, well, why did Bill, not me, have to be, you know, so much a part of the narrative? It's because, well, that's what life is like. To me, the best part of that piece in Vulture came right at the very end when she wrote, speaking of, you know, these these male white characters, it would be so much more pleasant to erase his history, make him like everyone else. But there's an honesty in the choice to keep the dethroned main guy around as a fictional device. He doesn't disappear in real life. He's still there tied to the lies of everyone around him. That was all just a quote from that piece. And I thought that was the the, the very best part of that piece overall. All right. Somebody who's not a man should have the last word. So, <laughs> so there's, there's two choices here. <laughs> we have two choices. I agree with that. That that is a great. That's a nice quote. But I and it's also as long as we hear enough about the other characters, you know, they need equal time or more. You know, mm-hmm. and Agreed. then it makes sense. And yeah. that's what I said about Bill in in the not this Bill, but the other Bill in the the chair is that he ends up becoming too much of a focus in it. If he's going to play a minor character still tied to all others, which I I agree with that. I just I it's the uh, amount of focus that I'm concerned about. 
All right, we have to stop there. Pretend that we had a conversation about why millennials may not like Seinfeld, and you'll understand <laughs> why we're ending with this music. We are back. Um, time for me to say a, a very sincere uh, word or two of thanks to Kat Pastor, who keeps this show on track as technical producer all week long, uh, and to Jonathan McPants, the producer of this episode and pretty much all knows episodes. I'll quickly also mention that I am actually going to be taking a break next week. I have not left the state of Connecticut in more than 600 days. <laughs> And I'm going to attempt to do that in a very marginal way. So we'll uh, have some of our favorite uh, other shows uh, on for you and then come roaring out of the gate on, I think, what is September 13th? I think that's when uh, I will be back. Uh, all right. So time to make some recommendations and some endorsements and things like that. Uh, Irene, why don't you get us going? All right. I have a book and a, and a Netflix show. So the Netflix and they're both about they both focus on women. Um, the Netflix show, I somebody told me about it. It never came up on my recommendations or anything. It's called Ethos, E-T-H-O-S. Has anyone heard of it? No, it's so good. It's Turkish um, and it focuses on it's about the city of Istanbul and, and, and the country and people from the countryside coming into the city. There's a therapist, there's a, there's lots of love and relationship stuff. There's um, just so much, but it's beautifully, beautifully filmed and incredibly beautifully acted. Um, there's, there's white Turkish men in there and they don't look too good. Um, they don't, and you know, they're, but it, but it's very, very interesting to see them. And, and actually some of them do there it's textured. Nobody is good or bad. You know, it's just a, I'm not a, describing it well, but it's a beautiful show. Um, and it's on Netflix and it was called Ethos, E-T-H-O-S. Um, I'm also reading a, no, I just, I, I actually just finished a novel called Cantoras, Can, Can, uh, which means singers, women singers by Carolina de Robertis, which is a lovely novel about these five lesbians in Uruguay who have all kinds of relationships. And it takes place first during the dictatorship. And it's about um, the, the conflict between freedom, self-expression, joy, sexuality, and the forces that oppress those things, both, both on a psychological and on a, and a political level. Okay, I'm going to just make a segue now just because we're, uh, time's a little short, but those, are, those both sound very, very interesting. Uh, all right, uh, Elizabeth, why don't you go next? Well, I endorse uh, Peace, Love, and Chocolate in Stockbridge. I go out there for acupuncture once a month, and uh, it is the most delightful little chocolate shop. I also, uh, if you want to take a movie and spin it from She's All That, the movie, there's a new movie on Netflix called He's All That. Very silly, fun movie, but kind of shifts it where the, the, the boy is getting the makeover instead of the girl is getting the makeover. And then for my book club, hello, book club people, The Lost Apothecary is uh, by Sarah Penner, a delightful book that I just got uh, done reading. Again, light, but... Um, Nicely written and a fun sort of end of summer read. All right, uh, Bill. Bill Usman, what have you got for us? So a lot of people on here today know that I have a habit of kind of binge reading uh, particular writers, and my latest is Zadie Smith. Um, I want to endorse everything that she's ever written. I'm in the midst of chronologically reading her novels. 
um, starting with um, White Teeth and now I'm on uh, the next to latest one called NW. Uh, she's just fabulous and I can't recommend Zadie Smith's writing highly enough. Cool. Uh, a, a noble project. All right. So I was trying to think of something to sort of build on with the the chair. What I came up with is a movie that I like, although I know a lot of people who don't like it that much. It's called Smart People. I think it's from 2008. Dennis Quaid really does play uh, a highly unpleasant, dysfunctional male professor who is much in need of rescue and instruction, which may or may not come in the form of Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, there's also Ellen Page. Uh, as Dennis Quaid's daughter, uh, like the J. Duplass character in The Chair. Uh, he loses his car and has to get around in other ways. Uh, and in fact, they both have their cars impounded, <laughs> now that I think of it. But but anyway, that, I, I actually think it's a terrific um, uh, movie. And, and, and Quaid's performance is, is just absolutely unapologetically unapologet- cranky, horrible man. Uh, is really delightful. Oh, and Thomas Hatinger plays his brother. Is is Mercutio like uh, you know uh, J. Duplass like uh, brother uh, with uh, lyrical weird funny qualities to him. And then you know, sort of working off the conversation that we just had about the Vulture article, I really would recommend because it's sitting there on Netflix along with Seinfeld, uh, the entirety of Thirty Rock, uh, which I mean I really do think that Tina Fey is the comedic writing genius uh, of our time. Uh, uh, and watching it from the beginning is interesting, too, because she doesn't quite hit the kinds of RPMs that she will eventually begin to hit early on. It's a little bit more of a slow build. And and watching it, I'm reminded of the fact that it's really almost impossible to have woke comedy. I mean, I think Tina Fey's a very enlightened person. But basically, you know, the 30 Rocks, like so many other comedies, kicks every possible tripwire of race and class and sexuality and, and, and runs it uh, in very transgressive places. Uh, and I just, you know, there's sort of no way. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely brilliant, but there's no way that you can do it if you're going to be worried about some of the kinds of things uh, that uh, that some of the younger generations tend to worry about. So um, also, not just because he listens to our station and sometimes to this show, but Alec Baldwin, you just forget how many. There's one scene in 30 Rock where Alec Baldwin impersonates everybody in Tracy Morgan's family, uh, including <laughs> Tracy Morgan, at, at a therapy session. He enacts an entire therapy session where Tracy Morgan can talk to all of his family members and then talk ultimately to himself. Uh, and he, he just, it's these little kind of miniature tour de force moments that Baldwin has where he just shows you all the things that he can do uh, are, are thoroughly delightful. All right. So thanks so much to a great panel, Elizabeth Kiefer, uh, Irene Papoulis, and of course, Bill Usman. Thanks for listening. Uh, stay with us next week. We'll have some good stuff for you. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah